0: Okay, good morning, Parsha's Vayigash. This week's Parsha, of course, reaches the climax of the drama between Yosef and his brothers. His brothers already, as we learned in last week's parsha, have come down to Mitzrayim already twice in this second trip um, in which they bring Binyamin with them on their way back out. Yosef, of course, hides his special goblets, his gvia, in the sack of his brother Binyamin. And then he sends his officers after and they catch the brothers, they bring him back. And the parsha ends literally on a cliffhanger in which basically Yosef says to the brothers, look, Binyamin's the thief. I'm going to hold him hostage, and you guys go back to your father, back to the land of Canaan, knowing that he has now set up a scenario very similar to what happened to him, where he was thrown in a pit, left behind, and the brothers went back to their father to see what's going to happen now. Are they basically going to reenact what happened, leaving Binyamin behind? And our parasha begins with Yehuda va'igash a love Yehuda Yehuda steps forward and says, listen, and he gives him a whole impassioned speech, which we are not going to be reading through his speech this morning. It is a beautiful speech, but it is not for this morning saying, we can't. <clears throat> we will not go home without Benjamin. Our father is not going to survive such a trauma. I promised that I was going to bring him back. You could take me, but this young man must go back home. What I'd like to take a look at is Yosef. Well, we're not even going to do this either. Let's just move it forward. Yosef then is unable to hold himself back, he can't handle himself, and he reveals himself finally to his brothers, and he says the the magic words, the magical words, Ani Yosef ha'od avi chai, it is me, I am Yosef, is my father alive, so they can't answer. They are literally speechless, that phrase which we're so familiar with, "I was speechless, and they were literally speechless could not open up their mouths to be able to say anything. And now what I'd like to do is take a look with you at a series of sukkim in which Yosef gives us this theological, philosophical approach as to how the brothers should address this issue of they're in total shock, they've sold their brother, they thought of him as this great threat, and here he is, here he is sitting on the throne as the viceroy of all of Mitzrayim. So let's take a look at some of the sukkim. I'll put it in front of you right now. And let's begin. Right after he reveals himself, we're going to... uh, Let's take a look. Here we go. First, he tells him, come, come close. It's me! I'm Yosef, the one that you sold down to Mitzrayim. And then he says, I do not want you to be sad. Do not let it be uh, angering in your eyes, would be a literal translation, that you sold me here. Because it was Hashem that sent me here in order to provide you with salvation. And this is the idea that Yosef is not going to repeat two or three times. We'll take a look at them inside. This idea of you think that you did this, you think that you sold me and it was a terrible mistake, but I need you to understand, I need you to know it wasn't you. You were just a pawn a tool in the hand of Hashem. He needed me to be here, and that's why I ended up here. So he says, don't be angry. Don't be upset that you sold me. In order to save your life. It's terrible famine. I'm actually going to save your life, and that's why Elohim Hashem sent me down here. And then he explains exactly what he means here in Pasuk Ches Vav, excuse me. We still have, it's only been two years. That this famine, and look, you've already come down twice, you have no food, we got five more years. Five more years, there's no plowing, there's no harvesting, there's not going to be anything. But in verse 7, he then adds again, Hashem has sent me before you. In order that you should be able to survive here in the land. liflay to to give your lives a deliverance. It was not you. And then he says it a third time in the next Basak. Viatah. And you need to know now. Loa It was not you who sent me. You think it was you who sent me? No, it was not you three times he says this idea. It wasn't you. It wasn't you. It wasn't you. Elohim, <speaking> Shem sent me down here in order to make me as like a father to paro. Beso, a lord of all of his household and to rule over all of Mitzrayim. And then he says, quick, one more elavi Go, go home to my father and say to him, So as Yosef said, what should you tell Yaakov? What should you tell our father? Should you tell him that you sold me? Should you tell him that you tried to kill me? No. You know what you should tell him? Hashem has placed Yosef on the throne of Mitzrayim in order to save us. So this is the theme, the clear theme that Yosef tries to transmit to his brothers, despite the fact that they did this, it was through their actions and their choices, but really they should know it was all a divine plan in order to be able to do so. This, rehearsed comments a number of very important comments on, uh, on this idea. How, do, how does a Jew deal with this? this, this dichotomy of making a choice, making a poor choice, an incorrect choice, and then seeing In hindsight, that you were a pawn or a tool in the eyes of Hashem who wanted something to happen and used you. So how do you view your decision? See, he writes two very important things. Number one, he says, this entire story, and probably no story more than this story, is a evidence or the evidence of the way in which the divine providence runs the world. It's a commentary, he says, on the Pesach in, in Mishle that Shlomo HaMelech says, Rav mechol kol v'secher k'sil v'sycher o rim. How Hashem uses everything, even folly and sin, he uses all of that to serve his ends. And everything fits into different pieces. In the, lay, the way that the sages say it, because of a couple of ounces of silk that Yaakov buys in addition to, for his son y- Yosef more than everybody else, the whole series of events, all the cascading events, one after another, all begin because of a few extra ounces of silk that Yaakov puts into this special coat that he gives to, uh, to Yosef. And in this story, the threads are visible, um, that even if they weren't apparent the whole way through, how that's the truth, how, how the divine scheme is always in nature. He comments for and this is what I'd like to, uh, to share, that, <clears throat> excuse me, how, how does the individual deal with that, having been making a poor decision? And he, he points out in a very interesting usage of the words that we started with the first time Yosef speaks to his brothers. He says, Do not let it be angry in your eyes. And he says, that's an odd usage. Usually when we see the word yichar, it's vayichar the, af. The, the facial expression is charon is connected with the nose. Charon af is the expression of great anger. We find that, it's uh, it's in this week's Parsha, in, um, uh, in the very beginning of our Parsha, in fact, the first words in Parsha is Vayigash. Uh, Vayigash, I love Yehuda. I'm going to speak to you. Yehuda, who this says to Yosef. Do not be angry at your servant. Here, when Yosef speaks, he doesn't say the language, yichar af, you should be angry, he says, al yichar be'eyneichem. Not that your nose shouldn't flare up, which is the expression of anger. It shouldn't be anger in your eyes. Very odd, a unique usage. So Rav Hirsch says, and the reason for that is because charon is an emotion, but the eye represents intellect. That represents the ability to see, like we say a phrase, uh, chacham e'inov show. A wise person has his eyes in his head. He thinks ahead, he sees ahead, he sees what the ramifications of his actions. And so Yosef says, do not be this combination of anger, but it shouldn't be anger in your eyes. refers writes as follows, I'll, I'll quote you his language. I cannot, meaning uh, I cannot prevent your feelings of regret and sorrow. You, you should have those feelings. You should regret what you did. You should be sorry about what you did, for wrong is wrong. You made a wrong choice. And you have to acknowledge that. You have to own that. And your feelings are justified. So that the feelings that you have of that shame, regret, embarrassment, yeah. But your minds should temper this consciousness this consciousness that we made a wrong decision, your mind has to temper that by teaching you, look at the deed through other eyes. Look at the big perspective, look at the big picture. As I, Yosef said, have come to look at it. I can see, I I say four times in this little speech, Hashem did this, Hashem did this, Hashem did this. So it's true, you did this. It's true, you made an error, a misjudgment, sold me, and I have every right to be angry, but I can look at it, I could take the emotion of it and look at it through my enayim, and I can see it was Hashem who did this because it's all for the good. I'm actually going to be the source of survival for our family. And you now need to look at that, and he combines it into that language of al yichar I recognize there's an emotion here, but you have to use your eyes to see. And the emotion that you have, own it. The shame, the regret, can't change that. But you have to be able to see the big picture. This is a complicated theological discussion, we're just touching on it a little bit, that this is a reality. Sometimes we're, so to speak, on the brother's side of equations, in which we do something in which we make a mistake, an error, and it ends up we're part of the divine scheme. More often than not, I would say, we experience life on the other side, on Yosef's side, where something happens to us. Somebody hits our car, somebody breaks a window in our house, where lots of others are simple examples, lots of other things, where we have every right or natural tendency to point to a particular individual and say, you are the source of my problems. You made a decision, and it was a poor one. It was a nasty one. Whether it was an accident that you were negligent on, or you even did it on purpose, I'm now suffering because of you. That's a very common expression that people have all the time. And Yosef says to his brothers, Elokim Hashem sent me here, you have to own the bad choice you made. You have to own that. I can't change that. I can't say anything not to make you regret what you did. You made a mistake. <clears throat> but I can see it intellectually that this was subject of a divine scheme that I needed to be here and I'm actually going to save you and we live with this contradiction of you made an error and it was part of the divine plan to happen what needs to happen. In our own lives, we don't have the, always the prophetic sight, obviously, of Yosef, nor do things happen so clearly within a short amount of time where we can piece things together. But as much as it's tempting to point to others and say, You are the cause of my problems, Kielokim Shlokhan Yosef says, it, it, it's, it's true in a way, but the bigger picture I could see beyond that, and he begs his brothers to see that way as well. One more major comment from Refersh. Why did this have to happen? See, this begs the question. You know, we can say, okay, so Yosef is willing to absolve his brothers and say, look, Hashem needed it. Why did it have to be that he needed to be in Mitzrayim? You can't say for the famine alone because don't send the famine. We, we We could have avoided the famine. We don't have to have Yosef down in Mitzrayim. We don't have to have all the brothers follow. Why did it have to be that the Jews end up in exile, they have to go to Mitzrayim, the famine is going to bring him down, the brothers needed to sell him in order to get him. Why was all of this necessary that Yosef can look at it and say it was a divine plan? Great! What was the value of this divine plan? So Rav Hirsch suggests a number of things. He doesn't use this particular phrase, ma'ase'avosimah lebanim, The actions and deeds that happened to our forefathers are signs of what's going to foretell the future, what's going to happen to us. But he mentions that idea three different times in his comments, and he says as follows. We needed to be in Mitzrayim. We could not develop as a nation in Canaan. The 12 sons of Yaakov, Avram was there, Yitzhak was there, Yaakov was there, but now that Yaakov has 12 sons, They needed to leave. Why should they need to leave and not develop in their beautiful homeland of the land of Canaan? Says says, First, they could have hardly developed into a nation had they stayed there. Because as they grew in numbers, they would have become scattered. Here they have this beautiful land. Twelve sons. Each son would have his own family. Those families would have families. What do people do? They would spread out. This one would go up north. This one wants to be near the sea. This one wants to go to the south. And as they spread out, they would become intermingled amongst the locals and as they'd be spread out and mingling amongst the locals, <clears throat> the principle, the values, the culture that they needed to develop as their own nature would have been tempered by the outside influences that would have, influ- that would have affected them because they were not a specific unit. In Mitzrayim, They were going to be thrown into a ghetto, the ghetto of Goshen. Yosef was going to put them in one particular place, and all of them would develop there, which would become 600,000 men by the time we leave Mitzrayim, all developing. And that's where they would become a nation. A family is going to turn into a nation, but remain close enough. Rav then goes so far as to say, this same idea is going to repeat itself throughout history, And the fanatic bigotry, which we're going to experience throughout the Middle Ages, he writes, he fast forwards through history. The bigotry, which is going to build the ghetto and force the Jew to live in a specific small area, is actually the most active means of Hashem's hands to keep us far away from the lack of culture, from the negative influences of the Middle Ages, and to keep us in confined circles to nurse the sense of family life, of family happiness, of community. And as much as one can cry about the ghetto disaster anti-Semitism, it's true, but it was actually the hand of Hashem saying, I need you to remain my Jewish people. And if there's no ghetto, if those walls crumble and you disperse amongst the nations in which you live, you will no longer maintain that identity. And the ghetto, like the very first ghetto is Goshen in Mitzrayim, was a tool that Hashem used to maintain family, culture, and identity, to be isolated from the negative influences that exist outside of us. And therefore, Yosef needs to become the vicer who's able to set that up in Mitzrayim for us to be able to do so. Then Rufaraj adds a second point. And so that no Egyptian could then reproach and yell and challenge the Jews and say, you have no business to be here. You're not born in these parts. You're a foreigner, which is all true. We were not born in that area. It was not our land and we were foreigners there. But so that the Egyptians can't claim that, All the Egyptians had to go through the same thing. All the Egyptians in the famine had to sell their land. All of them were given different pieces of land to try to work. And they were all strangers on the land they tilled. None of their cradles, says Reverse, stood as babies and infants in the same land they lived on right then and there. Says at first, this too foreshadows what's going to be throughout European history in a similar way. He says there was a remarkable stream of migratory nations, meaning all of Europe was settled by people who had not been in their homelands for hundreds and hundreds of years, which already had peopled almost all of Europe with strangers almost all of Europe could say that, so that when the Jewish people begin their great wandering and the dispersion amongst the European people in the 1100s, 1200s, 1300s, and we begin to spread out and settle everywhere, listen to this line, this is the most amazing line, so that by the time we get to Germany now in the 1800s, and what was the symbol of German intolerance to the Jew? So that when the Germans yell and scream, quote, make the Jews go back to Palestine where they belong, end quote, history can respond back to the German people and say, did then the cradle of your ancestors arise and stand here? No, you also arrived here relatively recently, so stop yelling at us to go back to Palestine in the land, the land that we came from. This requires just to stop and say, wow. In the point that Hirsch is trying to make, he's saying, hey, they're yelling at us. Well, you don't belong in Germany. Go back to Palestine. And we say to them, you also don't belong in Germany. You can't yell at us more than yourselves. And what is so fascinating is that 150 years ago, in 1870, when Refersh writes this, what was the, the, the anti-Semitic Trump? Go back to Palestine where you belong. They didn't want the Jews in their land. They wanted them back in Palestine because everybody knew that's where you're from. So in the streets of Germany, they yelled, go back to Palestine. And you fast forward 150 years, and we did. We went back to Palestine. And so now what do they yell? Get out of Palestine. It's not yours. It's just fascinating that 150 years ago, that was what they would yell at the Jews. Get out of our land and go back to Palestine. So the only thing that changes is what they yell and scream about. But that they yell and scream that we don't belong, whether they say we don't belong in Germany or they say we don't belong in Palestine, that part of the sentence is always the same. You don't belong, go somewhere else. Just amazing that in 1870 he wrote, that's what they were yelling at us, go, leave and go back to Palestine. Yehuda Avner, who wrote the wonderful book, passed away just a few years ago. He wrote a book called The Prime Ministers. He was a, a, I forget exactly his title, Um, for a number of prime ministers, an ambassador. And he wrote, he was an Englishman who wrote in a beautiful English, he writes about his experiences from 1950 about until the 2000s. Uh, or a little bit early, 1980s, 1990s, uh, with various uh, official capacities, with many of the prime ministers, just a wonderful work, and he writes about his childhood in England, when, of course, as those who are following in their Jewish history course, um, the Jews and and the English had a lot of run-ins in the 30s and 40s, um, of course, because the Jews didn't like that the English were trying to run the show, and the English didn't like the fact that the Jews were preventing them and trying to kick them out, so it was a messy situation. He writes as a a childhood Boy, in England, the graffiti on the wall of also saying "Get the Jews out and send them back to Palestine." In England, that that was the sense and how that shit. We all did. Half the world population, Jewish population, is back in Palestine, and now you don't have the right to be here either. Just. Fascinating. Lastly, refresh comments. Why did we need to go down to Mitzrayim? So he says, number one, as he said, we needed to develop as a nation, we needed to be tight. We needed to be in an isolated, insulated area so that we didn't become like everybody around us. If we would have stayed in Canaan, it never would have happened. We would have spread out and be influenced by the idolaters there. So we have to go to Goshen. We have to be isolated in Mitzrayim in Goshen, which foreshadowed what was going to be the Jewish ghetto throughout medieval Europe. Number two, in Egypt... Everybody was moving around, which would be the same story in world history. People would be moving around that they shouldn't have the claim against us, that we don't belong, you don't belong either. And number three, why did we have to go down to Mitzrayim? It arose, this entire situation, out of a story of kinah and sinah, of jealousy and hatred. As we described last week, how there were two weeks ago already, the brothers hated Yosef, they were jealous of him, and from that, all of our problems stemmed. And that was the reason why we needed the harsh melting pot, he says, of all we needed to endure in Mitzrayim to burn out of us, to purify the Jewish community from their hatred, from their jealousy. There's nothing like adversity which brings a unit, a family, a country together. And so the Jewish people had these, these, uh, these difficulties of, of sinna, of kina hatred and jealousy, and was going to be, so to speak, purified out of us in the iron furnace of Mitzrayim. And that, he says, as well, is going to be the same situation of all